Welcome to Money Isn't Scary, a podcast for women to explore our fears around money and inspire each other to be financially empowered. I'm Megan Dwyer, and I'm making it my personal mission to remove the taboo around money and help women rewrite their stories so they can stop staying small and begin to live life on their terms. In this show, we get real and uncomfortable as we unpack our beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors that aren't serving us anymore. I can't wait for you to join me on this journey. So let's dive in. Hey, you guys, and welcome to another episode of the Money Isn't Scary podcast. I'm Megan Dwyer. Today, I am chatting with Kelly Thompson, a leadership coach, author, and speaker with a passion for helping women advance to the rooms where decisions are made. Kelly has coached and trained hundreds of women to trust themselves, lead with more confidence, and create a career they love. Kelly is like the best friend that you wish you had in your 20s to give you advice. I sure could have used her then, but I am so glad I could talk to her now. She is warm, and she's empathetic, and she's thoughtful, and she helps women learn to trust themselves, which is something that is so close to my heart. This conversation is so powerful. I learned a ton from her, both personally and professionally, and I am so excited to share this episode with you guys. You're going to absolutely love her. But first, here's a little bit more about Kelly. Kelly Thompson is a woman's leadership coach and speaker who helps women advance to the rooms where decisions are made. She has coached and trained hundreds of women to trust themselves, lead with confidence, and create a career they love. She is the founder of the Clarity and Confidence Women's Leadership Program and a Stevie Award winner for Women in Business, Coach of the Year. She is the author of the critically acclaimed book, Closing the Confidence Gap, Boost Your Peace, Your Potential, and Your Paycheck. And in our conversation today, Kelly and I talk about the importance of defining and owning what you stand for, identifying what is my unique value proposition and owning it, the five myths of salary negotiation, creating a boundary script, and so much more. You can find out more from Kelly at her website, kellyraythompson.com, and that's K-E-L-L-I-R-A-E-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N.com, where you can find resources for all the things that we talked about in today's conversation. You can find her book, Closing the Confidence Gap, on Amazon or your local indie bookstore, or you can check it out at closingtheconfidencegap.com slash book. You guys can also find her on social media. She's on Instagram at Kelly Ray Thompson and on LinkedIn as well. I am so excited to share this episode with you guys. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the incredible Kelly Thompson. Enjoy. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the Money Isn't Scary podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, I'm excited to talk about money. I am too. I am so excited for this conversation. Um, We talk a lot on this show about the spending side of the financial equation and kind of living our day-to-day with intention. But I really want to talk more about the income side, because this is a big piece to the confidence and empowerment of women, right? So this is just going to be a really powerful conversation, I think. So before we dive in, I'd love to have you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. 
Yeah. You know, um, we talked about this before we hit record, but when I was a little girl, I wanted nothing more to be than to be a meteorologist. I want to be the the weather girl on TV. And I actually went to college for meteorology. And what was interesting was I kind of had this epiphany where I was like, oh, if I'm a meteorologist, I'm going to have to work the six and 10 o'clock news every night and not be home with my family. I'm like, I don't want to do that. So I kind of just didn't know what I was going to do. Well, I got a job at a bank. And about the same time, my mom actually changed careers and became a financial advisor. And I remember just kind of this, this merge of banking and her sitting down with me. And this was like before it was all automated. She brought out this little paper slider tool that showed me if I invested just $50 a month, how much I'd have at age 65. And I was like, whoa, like this is cool. And I also really loved banking. My first real job was at an investment firm. And then I actually went and worked for a bank. And as I got into banking, I found myself in an HR position. And in HR positions, I was doing a lot of recruiting. And when you do a lot of recruiting, you're talking about money and job offers and all of these things. And I talk about this in my book, but it is not lost on me that I went from like one career choice, which is the weather, which is the easiest thing to talk about, by the way to moving to a career choice where I spent the majority of my years in human resources, which is talking about money, which is one of the hardest things to talk about. And I know we can unpack this as we, as we chat, but you know, all that time in human resources. And now that I'm um, a women's leadership coach running my own business, I talk to a lot of my clients about negotiating job offers. And I can tell you that there is just a difference in gender. And not only the way men think about money, how they approach money, their willingness to talk about money, their willingness to negotiate money. And I mean, we can unpack all of this, but, you know, just in my time in human resources and now as a women's leadership coach, you know, so much of just this topic, you know, comes from mindset, generational upbringing, culture, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious your why, right? What was the reason you got into leadership coaching, specifically working with women? Was there a personal story for you Mm -hmm. that you needed to work through? I know a lot of people teach what they need to learn themselves. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So yeah, I worked in banking for uh, 14 years. And many of you know, because you listen to this podcast, the banking and financial industry is dominated by men. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't uncommon for me to be one of the only women in the rooms. And I don't think I realized at the time how much that impacted my confidence. Oh yeah. Like, I knew that when I was sitting in meeting rooms, I had ideas, but I would struggle to speak up. Cause I'm like, Oh, what if that idea isn't, what if people don't like it? What if people laugh? What if they yeah. think I'm silly? What if they think I'm not smart enough? Maybe I need to go back to school. I mean, all of that sort of stuff. Well, you know, in 2008, 2009, we didn't talk about imposter syndrome then. I mean, I think that word is more widely used now. You know, that was definitely in a in a corporate era where we weren't doing as much emotional intelligence training, talking about how normal it is to feel doubt before you speak up. Like, I just remember being there in rooms with, you know, yes, some women, but lots of men being too scared to speak up, really share ideas, take up space. But I also remember just how... um overwhelming and daunting it felt to think, gosh, I would really love to accelerate my career in this organization, but I don't see any people like me above a certain level. Oh my gosh. I feel the exact same way. I felt the exact same way, especially in a big organization. 
Yeah. And so, you know, there came a point where I did leave banking because like some of this was kind of starting to like come to a head. I'm like, I think I need to do something different. So I actually went and worked for um, a healthcare technology company, which still lots of men in tech and healthcare and worked there for a few years. And then I actually went to go work for a leadership expert and author and traveled all over the country doing leadership development type training. And I was traveling a lot, but I mean, this was my passion. So when I was in corporate, I was in human resources, I was in training and development. Like I loved teaching and training and coaching and helping people learn and all of that. But I was on the road a lot in my last job and my daughter was entering middle school. I had just gotten remarried and I was like, oh, I just want to be home. And it was at that point where I was like, you know, if I'm ever going to try to maybe make a go at this and start my own business, like I think now's the time. I had an incredibly supportive boss who was a really great partner and saying, if you want to start your own thing, I can partner with you because she didn't want to do coaching. She just wanted to go and travel and train. And, you know, when I really thought about what is my business going to be, I actually just started doing just generic kind of leadership coaching. But then when COVID hit, um, like many people, I lost a significant amount of income overnight because speaking gigs were canceled. Right. My coaching contracts were canceled because companies needed to um, trim back. And I thought, well, if I can't lose any more money, what do I really want to do? And I thought about, I'm like, oh, the thing that I loved was I loved when women came into my office at the bank and um, or at the tech company and said, I really want this job but maybe I need to go back to school. Like that coaching, that confidence, yeah. like really having a passion to help women advance to the rooms where decisions are made. Like yeah. I decided, you know what, if I can't lose anything else, I'm going to go all in on women because this was always a topic that was so important to me because one, I struggled with my own speaking up and my own confidence, but I just saw it so systemically from an HR perspective. And then, you know, a leadership perspective, just how much women struggled with their own confidence and self-advocacy and really made it my mission to help women advance the rooms where decisions are made. And as a mom, you also had that perspective too. Oh yeah. Raising a daughter yourself. Right. And yet also knowing the challenges and the the confidence issues that come with being a mother too, and just Mm -hmm. how you change, how your priorities change, adding that factor into all of this. I can understand so much because I feel like we all go through a little bit of a personal reawakening when we become parents Mm -hmm. and we are getting stage right in life. Yeah, I hear you. And I was there. I was there in a and still, you know, I I am I'm lucky now that I am in a firm that is most of our pretty much all of our lead advisors now are women, which is amazing. But it wasn't always that way. And there was a lot. I spent my first 10 and a half years at a large organization and I didn't feel like I had a place at all. I'm like, okay, I know I want to start a family at some point. And even the the women in the were there that had kids just were not like me, didn't look like me, didn't have lives that were like me. And I just, I really struggled to find my place. I really did. There wasn't, it was such an identity crisis for me at that stage of life. So I can, I can completely understand everything that you've gone through. And I can completely understand the need for support for specifically for women around this, right? Because it's like you want to empower them, but their path may not be the path that your standard male in the industry is on as well, right? Mm-hmm. And and do we even really want to get to that next level? Like, what is it? I think there's a lot of self-awareness that goes into this. And that's probably a lot of the work that you're doing with these women is helping to kind of have those heart to heart, deep conversations with themselves around what are their priorities? What are their needs and their wants? And 
how do we incorporate that into the everyday and how do we make this work for them in a way that's feels right for them versus kind of what culture tells us they should be doing. Oh, hundred percent. That's exactly what I do. We, the first thing that we always start on is identifying their values. And a lot of, you know, women are like, ah, oh, values. Cause you know, values are things you see on a corporate website that nobody actually follows through on. Mm-hmm. But when I phrase it differently and I say, okay, well then we're going to define what you stand for. They're like, oh, and like, we're going to have five words that describe what you stand for. Because what that helps us do is it helps us draw that line of discernment between things that look right and things that are right. And as they rise up in the organization, there's going to be a lot of people that tell them what they should do, how they should decide what jobs they should take. As I coach women who are accelerating in the organization, lots of times the only mental models they have are male leadership. And so they think that they just need to copy their male uh, leadership's work schedule or the way he makes decisions or the way he leads. And so when we can get really clear about your values and using that to define your leadership style, I really challenge my clients to say, just because now you are in a chief, whatever position or a senior vice president, or maybe you're now even the CEO, you don't have to lead like your male counterpart did. In fact, you should lead in a way that is in alignment to your values, because I have a hunch if we had more women running organizations, we would see more women in leadership because I really try to give women permission. Like you don't have to sustain this burnout culture. You don't have to sustain this always on culture that your male counterparts created. Like you can choose to do something differently. And I think, you know, when we start to see more women running organizations truly in alignment with their values, um, I think we can really change a lot of workplaces. And so that's where, just like you said, that's where I always start is really helping them own those things that they stand for. Because if you don't know what this, as the great philosopher, Alexander Hamilton said to Aaron Burr in the musical Hamilton, um, he says, if you don't know what you stand for, then what will you fall for? And I think as a leader, knowing your values can really help you live that. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're bringing me back. I, I remember at one of my jobs, I was younger, you know, this was probably nine, 10 years ago, something like that. And I remember comparing myself to this one guy constantly and feeling like I have to do it this way. I have to do it exactly that way. And I just kept getting hung up. I mean, and this guy was a CPA and he was so deep on the tax stuff. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be that way. I can't be that way. And I had this conversation with my boss who was wonderful and supportive. And she was like, but Megan, you're not supposed to be him. You're not supposed to be him. And it like, that was the first time somebody ever said that to me. And it really like was eye-opening. I was like, wow, really? Like I have something to add a value. That's not what he has. And that's still a value. Clients still appreciate that. And it was just a really interesting. And, and even though like she said it, I still had a hard time actually like believing it. And I still, to this day, I'm at a different company now. And I still see this like I, within myself, comparing myself to other people and feeling like I have to be them. And it finally hit me within the last, like, I don't know, year, year and a half that I have my own unique way of doing things. And I'm clearly doing something right because I'm still here and clients like me and I'm adding value and I'm feeling, you know, they're, they're showing me appreciation, right? So I'm doing something in my own way and there's room for that in this industry. Like it finally hit me that like, there's room for that. I am sensitive. I am empathetic. I am so caring. I try so hard and I don't let things just roll off my back easily. And all of those skills I used to think were like around a square peg in a round hole. Like I didn't belong here. 
but actually all of those skills, all of those attributes make me a better advisor in my mind. Like they, they make me more me. And that just hit me recently. And it's, it was a journey, but here I am, right. Still learning this and still processing and still feeling like trying to get comfortable in my own skin, but I'm doing it. And I'm sure that's exactly what you're working through with your clients and, and recognizing that, you know, the industry, I think, I think a piece to this too, is the industry has evolved. It has changed. There's a lot more women. Do I want to see more and more and more women? Yes, of course. It's still male dominated, but it's starting to evolve more and it's starting to, especially the industry is starting to go a little bit away from kind of the black and white and manage these investments in a silo to more of a holistic approach. And I think women tend to have a better perspective, like of a higher level view, because we're just wired to care. We're wired to nurture. And I think that's, that makes us good at this job, right? At this, in this industry, whereas 10, 15 years ago, that wasn't the case, right? So that helps with things, but also going through the path of kind of developing my own confidence and my own comfort level in myself and having that self-awareness and self-knowledge is also a really key component to this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've had a couple of clients who were financial advisors um, and a couple of CPAs actually, you know, so not everybody I coach is um, a leader because sometimes I, I think of financial advisors or CPAs um, as people who kind of are running their own businesses. And, you know, one of the things that right. we really worked on is a few questions. And so if you're listening and you're like, well, I'm not a leader, you can kind of ask yourself these questions is number one, we did the values exercise. What do I stand for as a CPA or a financial advisor or individual contributor, some form, some form, right? Their values. And how do I want to build my practice in alignment with my values so that 10 years down the line, maybe I am making some decent money. I don't want to get to a place though, where I resent the practice that I've built, or I resent the hours that I'm working is how am I making conscious and intentional choices to build a practice that aligns with my values. Yeah. And then the second question that we really work on is like, what are my unique gifts and talents? Kind of like you just said, like, what have I been put on this earth to do in the sea of CPAs or financial advisors or whatever it is that you do? Like, what is my unique value proposition? And really like owning that. Yeah. Because if we just try to copy all the dudes out there, like we just, you know, fold in. Right. And so it's how and you're going to go really... crazy. You're going to yeah. drive yourself Own crazy that. in the meantime, feeling yes. terrible about yourself because it's not, yes. it's not you. Yes. Yeah. And so it's like, how do we actually use that as a strategic marketing advantage? You know? And, you know, I think like, just like you described, it's that aha moment of like, oh, I can be sensitive and a practical advisor. I can be empathetic and yet provide, you know, really sound counsel and like all of these sorts of things just kind of, you know, aha. And then, you know, the third thing that we're really thinking about is just, you know, what are my unique strengths and what's my communication style that I really enjoy? And so what kind of clients are going to value that? Right. I don't need to go be an extrovert if I'm not an extrovert. I just don't like, how am I going to use my own unique introverted skills and advantages to attract a client base that values that? And so I love how you articulated, you know, that story and some of those things of, you know, knowing your values, you know, knowing your, your, your energy and communication style and knowing your skills and talents can really help you build something that you're going to feel good about five or 10 years from now. And, and also that kind of, that creates this fulfillment and purpose in your life too. And I think ultimately that's what we were looking for, right? Work is work. And you know, I don't want to show my kids that I just go to a job and I trudge through it and I'm miserable, right? I want them to show, yeah, sometimes it's a job, right? But 
We all have bad days. We all do. Right. And, and think of it as kind of more transactional, but if you can put your own purpose and fulfillment and meaning into your work, it makes it so much easier and it may to get through the day and it makes you likely a happier person and a more, you know, well-rounded person, because you at least don't feel like you have to shove the real you aside in order to just go and do this job every day. Like you clock in, you clock out, and then you can go be you after work. Like that's, that's how I used to feel, honestly. Like I had to, turn it's it exhausting to turn it off. It is exhausting. And so you want to be able to share, to, to, to show, to show that to your kids, that that's not what work is. I was taught, I mean, I listened to my mom complain about going to work all the time. And I just remember thinking like, okay, well, this is what it, being a grown-up is being an, being an adult is just going to work and being unhappy. And I, I, I'm recognizing now that it doesn't have to be, and that's on me. I, I am, I, I hold the autonomy to be able to make those choices. hundred mm-hmm, percent. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about money conversations and money myths and negotiation and advocating for ourselves because this is is the juicy fun part of the conversation for me again you know I talk a lot more on the spending side of things um, and helping women use their dollars in alignment with again those priorities and those intentions that we just talked about right And, and just slowing down but on the income side we still struggle to advocate for ourselves. Right. And a lot of times myself included, you know, it's just, this is what your salary is. And you say, okay. And you, that that's great. That must be what I'm worth quote unquote worth. And I'll just go with that. And you, we don't stop to question because we just think, wow, it's, this must be what I'm worth. Right. And I struggle with this and myself and I've done a kind of a deeper dive in on the podcast before about it, but I really want to hear your perspective on all of this and what are some of those tools and strategies to help women create the confidence to be able to start advocating for themselves and yeah. earn more money while they're doing it. In all my years of human resources and now as a leadership coach, you know, I've talked a lot about money and I've seen a lot of negotiations. And so I kind of say that there's five myths that I say out there that people kind of think, um, it, you know, around money when it comes to talking about money, asking for money and negotiating their salary. And so the, the number one myth that I see the most is this, this thought that, gosh, it's rude to ask Mm. that, you know what, maybe when I get offered, um, a salary, I should just be grateful. And I think a lot of women have internalized that message from their upbringing that you should just be grateful for what you have. You know, I don't think men receive that message. I think, you know, one of the things that's really important, and I know we talked about this before we hit record, was that in not too distant history, women couldn't even open a bank account in their own name. It was 1974 when that was changed. And so you have to remember that the cultural lens through which, you know, our mothers, you know, looked at was that we just didn't talk about money because we couldn't even have a dang bank account anyhow. And it was the men that went to the work and it was the men that managed the money. And so, you know, women were held to just different conversations. And so I think we, we just kind of internalized kind of this message that it's rude to ask. And I can validate that, that, you know, when I was in HR, that I would see a lot more men come in with higher starting salaries and just more likely to negotiate. And so the one thing that I, the one tip I have for this myth that I want to give folks is this. Remember what I said earlier, for us HR people who are doing this whole job thing, talking about money for us is like talking about the weather. 
Like we literally talk about it all day long. And at some point when you talk about any topic all day long, I always think about this in the medical profession, right? They talk about body parts all day long, right? So at some point it's just a body part. Well, same thing for HR folks. It's just money. And so that's what I want you to know. We actually are expecting you to ask. Mm -hmm. I want you to know that with every job offer I made, I was waiting for that other person to negotiate, to say, Ooh, I was actually thinking I was looking for something closer to this. And so just know, I know you think it's rude to ask, but on the other end for us in HR, we're expecting you to ask. Amazing. I have four more myths. Do you want me to kind of run them down all of them? I do. I do. But if, before you do that, I also oh, want yeah. to ask, I also want to uh, elaborate a little bit on that too, because even the, the story that we tell ourselves, like that it's rude to ask, I think we need to stop and challenge that. Like, is it actually rude? Is who is it rude for? It's rude for women, but it's not rude for men. So let's like think about that a little bit more, right? Like what actually is the story? What is the story that's going on in our heads? Is it that we're we just are scared to ask and and we're just saying that it's that it's rude and that women shouldn't do this? What is it, right? So let's I think it's important to dig into it a little bit more. Yeah. I often just challenge my clients I'm like, "Well, what's the opposite of it's rude to ask?" And they're like, um, it's helpful to ask. I'm like, great. Can you find in your evidence, any evidence in your life yeah. where you found it pretty helpful to ask? And usually they can come up with two or three things. I'm like, great. I'm like, see, so it just helps us like balance out our brain a little bit by not always looking at the negative. And the way I always think of it too, is you never know unless you ask. I suggest people do things like start small, right? Like mm -hmm. ask for, I was doing an, a podcast interview with somebody earlier this spring and I, this, this has always stuck with me. It's like, start with something small that doesn't really matter to you, right? Go into a store and just be like, hi, are there any specials or deals or that I should know mm -hmm. about as I'm walking around the store and I'm shopping? You never know, right? It do You don't know unless you ask. And mm -hmm. we need to start. I think that's a very simple, easy way to start this process and to start to get comfortable with putting ourselves out there. And, you know, if all they can do is say no. And if they say, mm -hmm. no, you're not going to die. You're not going to be hurt. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You just say, you just say, okay, and move on. Right. Yeah. It can't hurt to ask. You never know what yeah. you're going to get. Exactly. You know, another myth that I often hear when, you know, folks are trying to dip their toe into that negotiation is that, well, I should talk about my life situations to get the number that I want. And I'll never forget. Um, I had an individual I was negotiating a salary with. And one of the things he said was, well, I'm going to need, I think, I don't know, $75,000 for this because I want my wife to be able to stay home. Well, that's great. But one of the things I want you to be armed with is I think sometimes people think that like this personal appeal can get them the number they want. But for the listener, know that organizations have what we call like a compensation philosophy and we have pay equity that we have to maintain. And so if everybody just came in with their life situations, we would have really horrible pay equity because we would be rewarding the you know best negotiator, the person who had the most kids and not necessarily paying them for the work that they're doing. And so one of the things that I always suggest, and we are so blessed to have so much pay transparency out there in terms of laws right now, is instead of using your life situations, I want you to go out and get data. Go to LinkedIn and find similar jobs to what you're applying for. Maybe the job that you're applying for already has a pay range listed, which I hope it does. I'm so glad companies are doing this. You can go to resources like salary.com, um, glassdoor.com, payscale.com. You can even go to your state Bureau of Labor Statistics site and find data, but go get the data. What are people being paid in my region for the work that I'm doing? 
As someone who lives in Nebraska, I'm not going to go get California salary ranges. It just doesn't work that way. But go get your data, get a range. What are people in my role making? Because that's the data that you can use for negotiation that a company is actually going to listen to. And the thing that you pair with that data is your experience. You come to that organization and say, I did research and here's what people are typically making for this role in this area. And I believe that I deserve, you know, on the upper end of that because of A, B, and C. Like these are the things that I can bring to your organization because of my revenue numbers or my ability to create operational efficiencies or these the, the, the speed in which I can launch projects. Like really demonstrate your value to that organization and why they should pay you on the upper end of that because of all the things that you're going to bring. And just even doing that research is such a wonderful confidence builder because we're just gathering evidence of all the amazing things that we've done and all the things that we can contribute. And that's what we use for a negotiation. I love it. Do you find that as you're coaching women, they struggle with this though? Do you find that when they go in to have these conversations, and I do want to get to the other myths as well, because I find this really interesting. But before we do that, do you find that, you know, some women will be like, oh my gosh, I can't do that. What is it that's keeping them back? Oh, it's just nerves. It's doubt. And so one of the things that I talk about is, Um, this actually leads to the third myth, which is I shouldn't talk about money and benefits to the end. No, let's talk about it first because we already have nerves and doubt. Okay. So let's just, here's the thing. Talking about money is uncomfortable here. I'm going to let you all in on a secret. I run my own business. And so you would think that I am free from talking about money, but that would be wrong because only every day I'll get an email saying, Hey Kelly, can you come to our organization and speak on X, Y, Z? And you know what I have to do? I have to quote on my rate. Mm-hmm. And do you know how nervous I get still to this day when I quote people my rate? Because I'm always like, oh, what if they think it's too high? What if they think I'm not worth it? What if they say no? What if it gets awkward? Oh, I just want to normalize, it's normalize, so normalize. It's yeah. so common. It's I, so I feel common. like so many women, again, in business don't know what to charge because it's a worth thing because they don't see the same value that somebody else does. But again, does a man have this same thought process? No, they're just going to say, this is it. This is the price. It's my rate. Pay it or don't. Yeah. So I just tell folks with the whole, like, let's start talking about money from jump. In fact, that's what I do now. Um, Thank you for your inquiry. Here's my rate. And that's the same thing that I did as an HR person and the same thing that I want folks to do if they're a job seeker. On that first conversation screening with a client, I would say the pay range is X to Y. Because you know what? If we're not in the right ballpark, I do not want to go through on any more interviews. And same thing for you as a job seeker. It is hard work to interview. So let's just, you know, um, own that this is going to be a doubtful and uncomfortable process. Yeah. And just take some nice deep breaths. Yeah. And just recognize that if you've done your research and you have your pay ranges and you have, these are the top three things I can bring to this company. Like I can com- or I can ask for the salary range I need while also feeling doubtful. Like if you wait for the doubt to pass, like you won't ever talk about money. And it's, it's paralyzing. It's paralyzing. So let's just honor that we all feel nervous and let's just have that conversation up front. And then now it's passed and we can just focus on the interview process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I think it, that's just really good guidance. And I think we all need to be reminded of that, right? Whether it's, and it's not even during an interview, it's during your annual review or your whatever monthly meeting with your boss or throughout the year, throughout your, your day to day, right. Being reminded that you have the 
ability to advocate in this way for yourself. And let's start doing it again in smaller ways before you get to that kind of like the the place where you can have the bigger conversation around, around money. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So this kind of brings us then naturally to our next myth, which is if the job offer um, is higher than what you currently make, you should just take it and not negotiate even higher. Mm-hmm. I want to pause and warn women and especially people of color about this, because here's the thing. About 13 states have enacted um, a ban on providing salary history in job applications. And the reason is, is because women and people of color have traditionally been paid less than white men. And so let's flip this on its head. When I was an HR person, I totally fell into this bias, this anchoring bias that I would see qualified people come in and maybe I had a salary range in my mind, but you know, someone comes in, I'm like, oh, they're perfect for this, but they're only making that. I bet that I could still give her a little bit of a raise, but maybe not pay to my full max. I'm embarrassed to even say that, but like, it's just a decision anchoring bias. And so that's why instead of just taking something because it's higher than what you currently make, you might still be making less than your meal counterparts are right. making less than what the job is worth. And so that's why it's so important to kind of go back to some of those first steps that I said, go in armed. What is the market paying for this role? And based on your skills, talents, and experience, where should you land in that rate and ask for it? Mm-hmm. So even if you get the job offer and it's already higher than what you make, that's great. But what we really want is to be paid market value. And that's where I really love just to get into the whole data of this because a salary conversation is just a data conversation. Here's my skills, my talents, my experience. Here's the market data. And here's where I belong in that data. And I think sometimes, even though we're still going to feel nervous, it helps kind of take the emotion out of it. Yeah, that's really powerful. I didn't realize that, that there was salary history bans. I didn't even Mm -hmm. know that that was a thing, but that's really, really interesting. So Again, knowledge is power, right? So women can, if, if they are just like you said, armed with the the knowledge of what they deserve, right? Of what that market rate is for that position. You know, the whole point is to be able to again, like, be fair to ourselves, treat ourselves kindly. And I think if we were to go in and, and accept a role that's less than what we think that what we're worth we're just kidding ourselves. We're just, we're not in alignment with who we are. And we're going to feel probably deep down some underlying, you know, shame and guilt around that too. Well, and so one of my favorite coaching questions is this. Okay. So when I'm helping folks in that are, that are in career change mode and we talk about salary, I always kind of say, okay, what's kind of your good, better, best salary that you're looking for. And, you know, that kind of helps, you know, anchor them a little bit on their search, but lots of times then when we get into it and they say, Hey, Kelly, I got a job offer and here was the salary. And I can always tell in their energy that they're a little bit like, ah, I don't know. Maybe I should just take it because what if something better doesn't come along? And so I ask them this question in six months when the new job smell wears off and you get into the organization and you realize it comes with problems and challenging people, just like everything else. Are you going to feel resentful? Mm. You said yes to that number. And every time that is the clarifying question, people who say, you know what? Nope, I'm good with it. Or they usually most of the time they're like, yeah, because, you know, once that high wears off, I always say once that new job smell wears off, we're just left with work. And so when, when now it's just work day in, day out, am I going to be resentful of the number that I said yes to? And lots of times when people go, yeah. I am. That's usually a pretty good clue that the number's not right. And let's face it. I mean, I think something that 
that you talk about is that the starting salary when you go into a company kind of sets where you're going to be while at that company, right? For the kind of remainder of your career there, right? So Mm -hmm. you start somewhere and then that's kind of the base. Can you talk a little bit about that? And yeah. So one of my first job, um, so I did all the things wrong. I just want you to know in my, in my early twenties. And so I was moving from, um, St. Louis to Omaha, you know, got a job offer. It was like $7,000 more than I was making. And Mind you, I was still only making like 20 some thousand dollars a year, but as a 23 year old, I was rich. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm making like $28,000 a year. Right. But I, because I fell into that, that bias, that anchor of, oh, it's more than what I currently make. That starting salary then informs my 3% increases over the rest of my career there. And some larger companies are weird about giving people too big of raises when they move positions in some organizations, there's this like very quiet yet culturally, we don't talk about this where they don't like to give people more than 15% increase when they kind of maybe get promoted into leadership. When they go to around. the next, really? Yeah. It's a weird thing. Makes it, sense. I, it's very anecdotal. Not a lot of people talk about it, but a lot of my clients, and I've even seen it in the market, like, well, we don't really don't like to bump people up more than 15%. Well, if you never negotiated your first salary, that's going to anchor a lot of your, you know, your raises there on. And that's why a lot of people um, switch companies because they find that's how they increase their income is because they can go and ask for whatever they want at the new organization. Right. It's not anchored off of a certain percentage, right? Like Mm -hmm. from that base. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And I've seen both of those things, right? I've seen myself, the, the small incremental percentage raises that I get from starting at, you know, here in Boston, when I started Mm -hmm. out in 2006, my starting salary was 35, right? I mean, it was a little Mm -hmm. different cost of living over here, but but yeah, you know, then slowly kind of like creeping my way up along that corporate ladder and getting these like little 3%, 2%, you know, maybe 5% if I kind of moved my way up, up to another like level raises. But it wasn't until I changed companies that I really, I was able to see kind of a substantial difference in what the outside world saw of me versus what the internal kind of management within the company thought of me. Yeah. And I can guarantee you that that starting salary for entry level probably would have been different even just a couple of years later. And if it was a male, <laughs> I yeah. think about that a lot. A hundred percent. And well, I so that kind of leads to the Smith yeah. is money's the only thing that I can negotiate. Okay. Cause then some of you are like, okay, Kelly, but what if I want to take a job because the fit is perfect. The culture is amazing. It's the work-life balance that I want. Is money the only thing? I mean, what if I'm going to make a little less money? And so I think there's a myth that like money is the only thing that you can negotiate. It's not. And so in fact, I remember when I was leaving banking, I actually took a little bit of a pay cut because I just found banking is the wrong cultural fit for me and my, my talents. And I found a killer job, loved that job. And I actually took a little bit of a pay cut. But there was other things I could negotiate. I negotiated, um, you know, a little more flex time. I could negotiate a little bit more vacation, you know, those sorts of things because the well-being and the lifestyle was just worth so much. And you know what? I did such a great job at that job. Within six months, they had given me a nice big raise that was more than I was making in my previous job. So if you find yourself in the position that I did where you are taking a job that maybe isn't the money you want, but is giving you other things in your life that are important to you. I want you to consider negotiating your vacation time. 
Now that we're post COVID, you can negotiate some comp in some companies, you can negotiate how many days you're on site. You can negotiate flexible working hours. Um, you can negotiate, you know, um, my, my new favorite thing to have all my clients negotiate for is learning and development reimbursement, not tuition reimbursement. A lot of companies already have tuition reimbursement, right? Learning and development reimbursement. Say with this position, maybe you're being promoted to a senior vice president. I would like a $5,000 a year annual stipend to hire a coach or mm -hmm. to attend a women's leadership conference or to attend this women's, you know, or this leadership um, group program. Because I think where a lot of folks struggled was a lot of companies have tuition reimbursement. But if you want to take like a training, that's not really tuition, you know? So exactly. this is why you ask, advocate and negotiate yeah. for things that will help you. And you can frame that in a way of me going to this leadership training is going to make me a better leader for mm -hmm. you so yeah. that we can get better results. And so I love that one as a negotiating tool. That is such a great idea. I do. Uh, oftentimes I think, well, if it's not directly related to my job, like my, you know, continuing education or something like that, that the, I have to pay for it out of pocket. And I've done that. I've, I've signed up for, you know, women's conferences and paid out of pocket before. And I think, there is so much more value add to the personal development aspect of it that you apply to your professional development. I actually think they're both so much intertwined, right? The growth and the maturity on both ends, right? But yeah, I am totally going to use that one. I love that. Awesome. Before we wrap up, tell us more about your book. I want to hear yeah. all about it. My, my book is Closing the Confidence Gap, Boost Your Peace, Your Potential, and Your Paycheck. And it actually covers a lot of the things that we talked about today. It talks about defining what you stand for as a leader, really leading with your unique strengths and your unique approach, not molding you into who your company needs you to be, but really being the leader that you're meant to be, setting good work-life boundaries, learning how to really trust yourself and how your body says, heck yes, or hell no, you know, frameworks for speaking up at work. And there's a whole chapter on the five money conversations that every woman needs to have. And it's not just salary. And to, to perk up your ears, I talk to them about making sure they know how to have savings conversations, investment conversations, retirement conversations, because they need to be in the driver's seat for that. Yep. And, you know, it's unique in that it does give you actionable tips um, to help you lead with more clarity and confidence, but it also talks about the systemic issues that are often at play just to make women aware of, you know, what's happening in the workplace today. And yeah, I wish we could change things systemically, but that's not going to happen overnight. Right. So how do we exceed in spite of those things? And you can buy my book anywhere books are sold. It's um, hardcover e version and folks are loving the audible, the audible versions out there too. I love it. We're, real quick. I want to ask one more question. So you had mentioned just now in the book boundaries, you have a script for saying no. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Because that is something that I personally struggle with. And I know a lot of my listeners probably struggle with as working moms and we want to be everything to everybody. Right. So tell us a little yeah. more about that. So the boundary script really just came from like, I'm an introvert. I can't handle a super busy schedule. I was a mom. Plus I ran training teams and everybody wanted training all the time. I figure out how to say no, but do it nicely. That's where it came from. And so it just starts with gratitude, always thanking people. Oh my gosh, thanks so much for thinking of me. You know, like, let's just like start with noble intent. Okay. So step one, thank you so much for thinking of me. Step two, let people know what you value or what you're committing to. You know, right now I'm committing to spending the summer with my girls. So unfortunately, you know, I won't have time to accommodate that request. So step two is what you're committing to. Step three is what you just heard me say is what we can't accommodate. 
in the workplace that often sounded to me like, oh, thanks so much for thinking of me and my team. One of the things that we're focused on right now is rolling out our sales training. So unfortunately, we are going to be able to set aside a time um, to do this workshop for you. But then we turn it collaboratively, you know, and that way we start the discussion rather than stop it with animosity. And so it's just saying, yep. but I'd be happy to chat with you about a date that could work. Or, you know, it could be, hey, you know, why don't you um, call me next time? Or it could be, you know what, my team can't take this on, but I'd be happy to brainstorm with you quick about a few other people who might be able to, yep. to help you out right now. Yeah. What are some and other so it's really just, resources, right? Yeah. It's really just doing it with just a lot of grace, but yet standing firm on your commitments and your values and, you know, how you want to spend your time. Yeah. And I like that because it's a little bit of a softer approach than just being like, no. No, thank you. No, I can't. It's, and it's, sometimes, don't get me wrong, there's just a good old room for a thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but you're yeah. right. In the workplace, this one is a little more gentle. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. That's very smooth. And um, I think that's something that I need to start implementing myself. So I'm totally going to use the script as I think through even life the, this weekend, <laughs> right? Yeah. As things pop up. Thank you, Kelly. This has been such an awesome conversation. It's been such a joy having you. And um, and I have learned personally a lot my own for myself and my own kind of personal and professional development. So with that, tell everybody how they can find more from you, follow you, get the book, all of that. Yeah. So the book, just head over to our favorite friend, Amazon. And of course, it's in all the indie bookstores too, if that's your preference. But the best place to find me, and if you want resources for like what we talked about today, just go to kellyraythompson.com. I'm Kelly with an I, R-A-E. And if you click on my little free button, there's actually a salary um, negotiation guide. And Ooh. it will literally walk you through step-by-step of everything we talked today, including scripts and tips and all the places to go. And so you can download that for free. The two places I hang out the most, LinkedIn for sure, forward slash Kelly Ray Thompson, and then on Instagram at forward slash Kelly Ray Thompson. And drop me a note. I always love like hearing from folks that say, I heard you on a podcast. So yeah, I love it. I love it. This is awesome. Thank you again. I so appreciate thank your you. time. Yeah, thank you for having me.